Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumlaw Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumlaw or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumlaw.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, good morning, Grumlaw Church. I have been so excited for today. Seriously, this is one of my favorite Sundays of the year as we see so many new people come walking through the doors of our church. Trunk or Treat is finally here. Uh, And so if you are new around here, uh, thank you for giving us a shot. Even if we did have to bribe you with candy, let's be honest, it's not just the kids. The adults, we're we're pretty pretty big fans of those Snicker bars and Kit Kats and Skittles and all that good stuff too. And anyway, in that vein, uh, as you could probably tell today, every single week is unique. Every single week is a little bit different. Uh, And one of the things that we challenge uh, all of you with almost every week, and especially those of you who are new, is to come back for at least three straight weeks. And and the reason that we say that is for what I've already stated. Every week is unique. Every week is different. It's going to take you at least a couple of weeks to really get an accurate feel uh, of what we are all about around here. And I'm honestly really bullish on the point that if you do come back for three straight weeks, uh, we believe that God in spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit, will begin to show up in your life in such a way that that you'll want to come back, uh, that you'll be eager for how he's going to show up that that, that follow following week. Uh, as you draw closer to God, he will always draw closer to you. Those aren't just empty words. That is rather a promise from God himself. Now, as you probably already figured out, we are about three quarters right now of the way through a series titled Controversial Jesus. Uh, and we're taking a look at, at, at some different topics. Uh, for example, abortion, the gay community, the transgender movement, marriage uh, and divorce and singleness uh, that in so many ways are defining this, this cultural moment. And rather than asking the question, the question that, by the way, comes natural to every single one of us, but rather than asking the question, what, what do I think about this? Because, well, let's just be honest, we get it wrong often. Rather than examining what, what culture has to say on this topic, because again, culture gets it wrong often. Instead, we're asking, what does God say about this? Now, I, I recognize that, that there are a good number of you uh, who have joined us here today who, who might not really care what God has to say on these particular topics. His opinion has, has weighed very little into your thought process to this point, and, and I can certainly understand that. Uh, we as Christians actually should be quite wary of imposing Christian standards on those who do not claim Christ. But, but here's why I think you would be wise to consider what it is that God teaches on this stuff. And we, we talked a lot about this in, in, in part one. I'm guessing that if you showed up here today, uh, you've had a sense that, that perhaps the current state of our world is less than ideal. That, that if there is a, a, a right way and, and a wrong way, we as society might, might be more actively engaged in, in option number two. That, that is the, the wrong way. That, that is, you've had a sneaking suspicion that something might be broken. And I have really good news for you. Uh, the God that we worship and talk about around here at Grumlaw is a good God who really does want what is best for his most prized creation. That is you and, and I. He, he proved that to us when he sent his one and his only son to, to die for us. It's how, it's how desperately he longs for a relationship with, with you. And, and if he would go to those lengths to, to win us back, what, what else might he have waiting for us? And as it would turn out, he knew because of our sin problem that that we would have a propensity to undermine our lives with our own poor decision-making and and our know-it-all attitudes. So so, so he preserved this 
text, we, we call it the Bible, as a manual for this life. A, a gift from the perfect God to his imperfect creation that when followed, it leads to the life that, that we're all universally searching for. That the life that's marked by joy and peace and contentment. As we've been reminding ourselves of throughout this series, God doesn't give commands because he loves rules. God gives commands rather because he loves you. He's trying to protect us from us, trying to protect me from me, trying to protect you from you. He's trying to save us from regret and shame and, and embarrassment, the, the sort of antithesis to joy and peace and, and contentment. See, as I've walked with Jesus over the last 17 years of my life or so, every time I thought I knew better, I, I didn't. Every time I thought God was being restrictive or maybe oppressive or, or was just trying to keep me from having fun or God was being a control freak, I, I was quickly proven to be wrong. It, it was rather just, just a loving dad trying to protect his kid. He, he's looking further down the road than, than you and I have the ability to see and trying to protect us from, again, our own poor decision-making. Think, think train tracks, not prison bars. Train tracks to, again, joy and peace and, and contentment and escaping them isn't freedom, it's, it's a train wreck. As my life and so many of the lives who are looking back at me right now have, have demonstrated. Now, if you haven't been here for the entirety of the series, uh, it's been far and away the most listened to series that we have ever done. Uh, you can always get yourself caught up at grumlaw.com messages, uh, or you can find us at a Grumlaw church wherever it is that you grab your podcast. Now, now today, uh, and I know what some of you are thinking, like how many more controversial topics could there possibly be? Uh, today, we talk about the topic uh, that as I prepared for this series, I, I had this one circled as, as the one that would likely offend the most people within our church and would have the greatest opportunity to shrink the size of, of this faith community. Uh, one of my favorite preachers, uh, he refers to these uh, Sundays as, as elbow room Sundays, meaning that you'll probably have a little bit more elbow room next week. Now, the title of today's message is Jesus and Mammon. Now, now, the reason that many of you don't already immediately find yourself on edge and on the defensive is because you are not familiar with this word. So, so allow me to explain and, and put you on edge. Uh, mammon it is a word that we see frequently used in our English Bibles, but only if you happen to read from a more traditional, uh, some might call it a more literal or a more conservative translation. Translations like the ESV or the New King James Version. Uh, most of you are likely reading uh, from the NIV, that is the New International Version, or the NLT. Uh, that's the one that I really recommend, the New Living Translation. Uh, and we recommend the NLT because it's frankly just the easiest to read. All of these Bible translations are just that. They are translation. None of them are a word-for-word -word match, so why not pick the one up uh, that is easiest for you to understand as you read along? And as such, uh, in those newer translations like the NIV and the NLT, uh, those translators usually use the word, rather than mammon, they use the word money in its place. Now, now I have your attention, but but money only captures a portion of the intended meaning of, of this Greek word mamonas. More literally translated, mamonas, or as it appears sometimes and again in our English Bibles, mammon, it means money, wealth, and material possessions. You see the difference? And this is why those early Bible translators were reluctant to just swap mammon with the word money. They felt, and I would say, well, they were right, that money fell a bit short. Now, now, the reason I say that this message, out of all the weeks in this series, and again, there, there are 12 of them, uh, has the greatest opportunity to offend is because up to this point, 
it, it has been very, very easy for the Christians in the room to, to feel very affirmed. M- meaning, I, I doubt many of you were surprised by the position that we as a church and me personally took on, on topics like same-sex attraction and transgenderism and, and abortion. I, I doubt there are very few people, if any, who walked away from our gathering two weeks ago and thought, man, I just can't believe that Shay is pro-life. I mean, that one really took me by surprise. But when, when it comes to money, wealth, and material possessions, mammon, well, Jesus has some rather direct words for us. And when I say us, I'm talking about those inside the church. And in particular, those of us in the American church, because of the immense wealth that we share, again, as a part of our first world country. It's been said, and I've brought this up in the past and wholeheartedly agree, which is why I'm bringing it up again right now, that the most tolerated sin in the American church is, is consumerism. Now, now again, notice right there what, what I didn't say. I'm not talking right now, or for the rest of this message, to our society at large. That would be a different talk for a different day. I'm talking to, to all of us, all of you who are staring back at me right now, specifically those of you who, who would call yourself a Christian. So, so, so disclaimer right here on the front end of this message before I really get into the meat of this. If you are sitting here today and you don't call yourself a Christian, you can literally pick and choose your way through this entire message. And I mean that very genuinely when I say that. Treat all of this as optional. And please, I'm begging you, do not get offended because this is very much an insider. I am already a Christian talk. But if you are sitting here today and you call yourself a Christian, well, buckle up. Because Jesus does not hold back when it comes to mammon. And, and before I pray, I, I want to remind us of something that, that people far wiser than me have, have pointed out and, and all of our lives have in fact proven. The, the areas where we get most defensive are usually where we have the greatest room for growth. Throw a rock in a pile of dogs and the only one that barks is the one who gets hit. If you're offended, it's probably for you. For instance, if someone was to come up to me Uh, and were to talk to me about how all Christians should consider foster care and adoption a calling to be involved at least in some way, uh, you would find no resistance on my part. Why is that? Because Andrea and I are are living that. We've been obedient in that particular area of our lives. Now, conversely, if someone was to come up to me, and and this has happened before, and and gently point out that that I need to exercise greater self-control when disciplining my kids when they're misbehaving, there would be something inside of me that would almost immediately whisper the nerve of that son of a, why? Because I know that I have a lot of room for growth in the patience department. So if you find yourself wanting to, you know, hurt me in some way in this message, remind yourself that that one, (laughs) I didn't come up with this stuff. This is rather what Jesus taught. Don't shoot the messenger. That the same Jesus who, oh, by the way, would end up giving his life for you. So, so, so he's pretty well proven that, that he cares about you and, and does have your best interest in mind. And, and number two, the, the areas, again, as I've already said, where we get most defensive are usually where we have the greatest room for growth. So with that, uh, allow me to pray right now. Heavenly Father, I, I do, uh, I beg of you right now that this morning, um, this would be a seminal moment in, in the life of our church where, where people turn and hand over all control, control to you in a way that they never have before. 
I pray for humbled and softened hearts. I pray for my tone, uh, that it would not be one that, that is uh, pouring on guilt or shame, um, but rather, God, it would be one of, of yours, uh, the God who, who delivers grace and, and truth in a way that just compels us to, to move to action and to greater obedience to you, trusting that you really do have our best interest in mind. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for preserving these words for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, now, our teaching text here this morning, uh, our primary verse that we're going to be taking a look at, we find in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Um, and I want you to keep in mind, these, these are words from Jesus himself. Here it says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now again, if you have a more modern NLT, NIV translation, it it says in yours, you can't serve God and money. But again, the the original intention there is you cannot serve God and, and, and mammon, money wealth, and material possessions. Now, it's worth pointing out uh, that Jesus right here is just making a statement of fact. And it could just as easily apply to any other relationship. You can't serve both your wife and mammon. You cannot serve both your children and mammon. You can't serve both your friends and mammon. Money, wealth, and material possessions has a gravitational pull unlike any other area of our lives. It's why it's one of the most popular topics in in all of scripture. In fact, there's a very compelling case to be made uh, that that money or mammon is specifically the second most discussed uh, topic in in the entire Bible. See, God isn't after your money, nor does he need your money. This is really, really important because so often uh, when money is brought up in church, and this isn't unique to Grom Law, this is literally every church ever. Uh, whenever money is brought up in church, uh, the sentiment is expressed that the church is just after my money. And I got to like, whoo, take a deep breath right now. Y'all, if, if you're still saying that line, you got to come up with some new material. You got to come up with a new line or a new excuse to be completely disobedient in this area. That is like so 1996. We are all on to that one. We are talking about the God of the universe. So <laughs> he doesn't need your token $20 bill. Rather, he wants you more than anything else. He longs for a relationship with you. And, and he knows that, that mammon, more than anything else in our lives, has the greatest opportunity to divide your loyalty between you and him. It has the greatest opportunity to undermine your relationship with the almighty living God. See, see there's a tension that, that exists inside every single one of us. Uh, we tend to trust, and this is really what Jesus was getting at here in this passage, and, and therefore be the servant of mammon or, or God. And you're like, well, it can't be that simple. No, it's really usually the way it goes, mammon or God. God knows the chief competitor for your heart will forever be mammon. And because he knows what a terrible master that mammon is, and conversely, what an incredible good master he is, He decides out of an overflow of his grace and kindness and love, he decides to give us a heads up about this. He knows that greed, which is really what is at the root of mammon, is never satisfied, that it always wants more. Furthermore, it's volatile, meaning one day you can have plenty and the next day it can all be gone. It's unstable, it's unreliable. And so he asks us to instead serve him, the God of the universe who does not change, who cannot change, the God who is love, the God who would get off of his throne in heaven for you, the only one who is worthy of our praise 
and our adoration and our dedication. Now, now a huge part of the reason uh, that a teaching like this has the ability to rub people the wrong way in addition to what I've already pointed out is because through the years, um, I'm just gonna say this very plainly, we have neutered Jesus's teachings on this topic to make them more palatable to our rich first world American ears. And one of the questions that I was challenged with so many years ago, and will now pass along to my incredible church family, is if I was able to eliminate or at least push to the side everything that pastors, preachers, and other Christians, so again, inside job, other Christians have told me over the course of my faith journey, what conclusions would I come to after reading scripture? Because Christians, and honestly, especially people like me that do what I do for a living, we have a way of muddying the waters of complicating things that that ought not to be complicated, but very straightforward stuff from the lips of Jesus himself. Now, Now this obviously, this sentiment right here, doesn't exclusively apply to our topic this morning. It's a good principle no matter what the topic that scripture is addressing. But applied here specifically to mammon, it is especially biting. Let me provide us with some examples to help drive this home. All of this I will do my best without comment straight from scripture itself. Uh, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Acts chapter two, verse 45. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. Speaking of the early first century church. In 2 Corinthians chapter nine, verse 11. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And then lastly, Matthew chapter six, verses 19 through 21. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And then this very direct comment, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Now church, I want you to keep in mind, that this is just like the tip of the iceberg on, on teachings on generosity, financial stewardship, and mammon. I could have literally spent hours just reading scripture to you without commentary on this particular topic. Now, now in light of all of that, I'm gonna do a little bit of compare and contrast here. Consider some statements that have been wielded my direction in my adult life as I have attempted to not just believe, but actually follow Jesus in this particular area. And I want you to keep in mind that every single one of these comments was, was cast my direction by a Christian. So again, not people on the outside looking in, again, inside job. Uh, are you sure you're supposed to start a church? Churches need people who can be really generous with their finances. The amount of resistance that Andrea and I were met with when we felt like God was placing this call on our lives to start a church was, was enormous. And it came from nobody outside the church. It was from people inside the church, people who called themselves Christians, who are aware that Andrea and I, at that point in my life, was making a decent amount of money, and we were giving a large percentage of that back to the church. And it was almost like this panic-stricken moment of like, okay, if you guys stop giving, you take a new career that doesn't pay you as much, like how is God gonna, gonna make up for that loss? Uh, you shouldn't be giving money to an organization like ODI. ODI is Our Daughters International. It's one of the organizations that we support as a church. We fully sponsor two border stations. 
between Nepal and India that every single day uh, rescue between four and 10 women and girls from the horrors of human trafficking. And again, this was said to me by several senior leaders in churches. You shouldn't be giving money to an organization like ODI until you are financially self-sustainable. We had made this decision early on in the life of our church that we were just gonna be a generous church. We didn't feel like that was a switch that you could flip on once you were self-sustainable, but apparently a lot of people thought it was rather reckless that we would decide to give such uh, large sums of money away while we still uh, were not financially self-sustainable. You know, uh, you could have had all of this too. You're the one who decided to go start a church. This was said to me fairly recently, actually, by somebody as they were pointing to their rather large uh, vacation home saying like, hey, you could have had this, but you decided to, again, go start a church. I'll leave it there. Uh, This one, again, very recently. Hell of a business you have going for yourself. It doesn't pay you a penny and drains all of your money. Uh, A very sarcastic, biting comment, uh, again, by a close friend uh, who aware, some of you know this, I'll talk about this a little bit later in this message. My wife and I, we started a coffee shop that gives away all the profits to the fight against human trafficking. It's called Thread Creek Coffee. Um, And they were almost frustrated for me uh, that Andrea and I had drained our entire bank account to start this coffee shop. And again, that was their comment. Uh, And then lastly, uh, and this was fairly recently, you're going to adopt another kid with everything else that you have going on right now. Uh, That was specifically surrounding a conversation around finances. And again, they thought it was quite reckless that Andrea and I would enter into adoption yet again uh, with all of the other financial, you could call them burdens that, that, that are on our life right now. Now, now to be fair, uh, most of the financial decisions that I have made in my adult life, and again, just calling attention to the obvious, most of the financial decisions I've made in my adult life make no sense when viewed through a worldly lens. But, but guess what, church? I, Shea Prisk, am not a world follower. I am a Jesus follower. Jesus is not merely my savior, he is my Lord. And as such, I submit to his teachings, even when Christians tell me with their lukewarm version of following Jesus that I am a fool. See, I'm not trying to submit to the American version of following Jesus. I'm rewinding it back and going for that OG gangsta version that grabbed the attention of the ancient world. The version that we read about in the book of Acts where people started living so drastically different than friends and neighbors and coworkers that all of those people had to lean in to take a closer look because they were like, this was you before Jesus, this is you post Jesus and a lot of stuff has changed. The the version that, oh, by the way, took the words of Jesus literally and seriously, trusting that if God says it, then it must be best for us. A a piece of advice that has been shared with me many, many times, and and I've even actually shared this with with this faith community, uh, and now I realize is at least partly some hot garbage, uh, is be wary of, of passing your convictions on to others. Now, to be fair, Uh, Part of that is true. Christians, as already mentioned at the top of this message, should be wary of passing along Christian rules to those who do not claim Christ. Christians throughout the ages have had a nasty habit of doing that. Uh, There's also a difference, and we've spoken to this throughout the series, between, there's a difference between the general will and the specific will of God. The general will of God is well contained within this text. 
And it's not stuff we need to pray about. It's just like God says it, then it must be best for us. We should just walk forward in obedience. But there is a specific will that God places on each of our lives. And we should be weary of of passing that specific will on to others as if God has specifically told every other person on the planet uh, to do the exact same thing. But but where we have seen followers of Jesus, again, I'm gonna use this word, probably the only time you'll ever hear this word used multiple times in a sermon, where we have seen followers of Jesus completely neutered, where followers of Jesus have followed lockstep with culture is the premium that we have placed on no offense. Like, like that's our primary concern. It's just like, I, I don't want to offend anyone over the biblical mandate to allow one another to be used as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, allow one another to be used as an instrument to see what I can't see. Because here's what we all know, and honestly, this is hardly a Christian principle. We all have stuff in our lives that we are completely blind to, or, or stuff sometimes that we've just chosen to ignore. Areas where we need someone else, specifically as we speak to this faith community, where we need our brother or sister in Christ to gently call out and, and ask us to correct that, that balance of, of truth and grace. This is one of the hallmarks of Christian community, this word that, again, it's become a lost art form, accountability. I'm going to help you see what, what you can't see. And you're going to help me see what, what I can't see. And because we live in a no offense, you do you and I'll do me society, we've in large part, we've lost this. And come on, when you think about it, we're left with entire faith communities that tiptoe around one another. We don't dare share anything that might rock the boat because the precedent has been so clearly set that the minute I might share about something in your life that is in fact drifted or doesn't line up with the words of scripture, I mean, you'll just leave and go find a new church. A new community of people that's hardly a community at all where where you don't really know anyone and no one knows you. No offense has been placed on a higher pedestal than than accountability, being conformed into the image of Christ with with other people who who love you and care about you. Church, it's it's what I'm describing right now (laughs) that has caused so many of you to be shocked that we would venture into a series like this. I mean, you just can't believe that somebody would dare stand on a stage and share what, what we've been sharing. But, but church, you're giving me too much credit. We're just teaching scripture. And, and again, that speaks to this no offense culture that, that has become so pervasive, not just outside, but again, inside the church. And, and to return to the topic of the day, that there's no area that more greatly speaks to this that when it comes to how the American church has traditionally tiptoed around its congregants in this topic of mammon, but because nothing, and, and we've experienced this, nothing sends people heading for the doors faster than when you start talking about money, wealth, and material possessions. But because, and again, this is just logical, follow the train of thought. Because of the stranglehold it has on most American Christians, most of the people who are staring back at me right now, but because it is the most tolerated sin in our churches. And when you read the words of scripture, it's impossible to come to any other conclusion than, and be forewarned, I'm about to pass some convictions onto you, but, but not mine, it's just scripture, unadulterated, non-Americanized scripture. It, it is impossible to come to any other conclusion than 
Everything I have been given is a tool given to me by God to be leveraged for his kingdom on this earth. Plain and simple. Not some, all of it. Uh, Again, I alluded to this just a little bit ago, and I've talked about this in previous sermons. Again, my wife and I, we started this coffee shop, Thread Creek, all the profits given away to the fight against human trafficking. And, And the consistent proverbial feedback from those outside and inside the church has been utter disbelief. Often individuals stopping just short of calling Andrea and I liars uh, because they've literally never heard of anyone doing anything like this. It, it, it's been like, it's been hard to, to, to digest and, 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 and wrestle with that. It's like, seriously, never? Church, shouldn't doing things like draining your bank account to help rescue girls from the horrors of human trafficking be pretty routine behavior for followers of Jesus in light of what he has taught us and more importantly, what he modeled for us on the cross? See, the reason it so stands out has less to do with the obedience of Andrea and Shay Prisk and speaks more to the disobedience of Christians at large in the area of mammon. One of the things that God has been gently pointing out to me is I've been stewing on this sermon now for about a year and a half. It's like really long note in my phone is how comparison excuses you. This isn't just true of financial stewardship in the kingdom of God, but admittedly, it's probably most revealed through our finances. And I'm well aware that some of you are not going to like what I'm about to say right now. Remember, my commitment as the pastor of this church is to teach the entirety of Scripture. It's up to you whether you receive or reject. I am not a politician. I'm not trying to win votes. I am a pastor. I am trying to win souls. Comparison excuses you. It becomes a catalyst for inaction. Uh, I'll give you an example, and I warn you, it will be poignantly on topic. Uh, Something we call the tithe. Uh, A biblical principle uh, and way of life, I might add, where uh, you as a follower of Jesus faithfully give 10% uh, of your gross income back to the local church for what God is doing here in the world. Now, that's not something that was invented by me, but again, rather invented by God because God has chosen the local church as the instrument to spread the life-changing, eternity-transforming message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. So so if you give 10% of your gross income back to the local church, uh, again, a biblical mandate, this is just following Jesus 101, but but stats and actually our own data even within this faith community show us that only about 5% of you I have chosen uh, to take Jesus up on his offer in this area. Only about 5% of you have chosen to be obedient in this area. But but if you do, again, give 10% of your income back to the local church, you are by comparison, (laughs) you are crushing it in the generosity department when not only compared to the world at large, but also again to other Christians. Again, only about 5% of people actually engage with this. So, So think about this. Because you give 10%, and, and others of you, come on, you're more than willing to use your 5% or your 2% or your $20 weekly tip to justify what I'm about to say. Because you, you give something or, or really anything, uh, you use it as the excuse to spend your money like a drunken sailor in every other area of your life. And again, this is going to make some people squirmy, but you see a new shirt, you see new a pair of pants at TJ Maxx or whatever store that you choose to shop at, you just immediately purchase it. You don't even think about it. You see some new space-saving device for your kitchen at your friend's house, you're on Amazon, you have it shipped to your front door the next day. You suddenly get it in your head, and this happens all the time. I don't know if this is just like an American thing, it's a first world thing, but you get it in your head 
that, that your car just suddenly isn't nice anymore. That there's nothing wrong with it, or maybe you had to take it in for like one $500 repair, but something happens in your head, and within weeks, you've convinced your spouse that it's time to upgrade, and you're shopping for that new car. You've traded in your old one that, again, was working and running properly as it should, and, and you've upgraded with all the debt that comes along with that. You decide that you want the vacation home rather than the Airbnb. I mean, you just can't handle being in somebody else's house. And within months, you've identified exactly where you all buy, you'll buy. You make all the plans to make that a reality. You see some new design on Pinterest for a bathroom that you just can't get out of your mind. The design is just incredible. By the end of the month, you have already called the contractor. You have it lined up. And again, you haven't invited God into any of these conversations. Church, how do we justify all of this greed, all of this idolatry, all of this consumerism, all of this love for mammon? I give back to the church. There is a passage um, as I was studying and and preparing for this week um, that just rocked my world. And it's a story that if you grew up in church, you've heard it before. I had heard it before and uh, there was something new that was pointed out to me that, again, it just, whew, it, uh, it did something to me and my wife, Andrea, and, and, and how we approach um, mammon. In Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, it says, While Jesus was in the temple, he, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. And, and just to be really clear, and I, I don't say this to be a smart aleck, that's us. We're the rich people dropping our gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow. We're not the poor widow. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow is given more than all the rest of them. For they've given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. Now, historically, and if you grew up going to church, you've heard this before, Uh, This is kind of how this passage is taught in the historical church. God doesn't look at the amount, he looks at the heart. God doesn't look at the amount, he looks at the heart. That the rich were giving out of their excess, she literally gave everything she had as small as it was. That's not wrong or inaccurate, by the way. I don't want to undermine the teaching uh, of many others, including myself. I've taught that on this passage of scripture as well. But it was my mom, actually, uh, who just, man, (laughs) so thoroughly studies scripture Uh, During her quiet time, um, she passed this along to me, and providentially, I might add, because she had no idea that this series was coming up, nor this specific message, and how specifically God had already been speaking in this area. Um, Jesus judged both gifts, both given by the rich and the poor, not by how much they gave. And you got to get this right now. This is so important and so pertinent to our American ears. Jesus judged both gifts, the rich and the poor, not by how much they gave, but by how much they had left. Church, this this is how generosity is measured in the kingdom of God. It's the complete opposite of how the world measures generosity. But the world measures generosity by what you gave. Generosity, according to the kingdom of God, is measured by what we have left. And and come on, it's, it's not just you, it's me. We got a lot left in our garages we got a lot left in those storage rooms. We got a lot left sitting on our nightstands. We got a lot left sitting in the trunk of our cars. We got a lot left sitting in our storage units. If this is the measure, how many of us, how many of the Christians looking back at me right now make a passing grade? Are we giving sacrificially 
or are we giving recreationally? See, comparison might very well tell you that you are crushing it. And Jesus comes along and with one line tells us otherwise. Generosity in the American church versus generosity in the kingdom of God. And I want to remind us, because I don't want these words to get twisted here this morning. I want to remind us of why Jesus would teach something so direct on this topic. Again, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, he concludes this teaching on mammon by saying, Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Jesus, more than anything else, he just wants you. He he longs for nothing more than a relationship with you. And he was smart enough to know that if he can get your wallet, he'll probably get your heart. And and so what step of obedience is, is God asking you to take as it relates to mammon? What steps might you have already taken if not for playing the comparison game? What what has comparison excused you of? Think about this. Where have you actually used obedience in one area of your life to be completely disobedient in this particular area? Well, let's return to that question from the beginning, slightly tweaked to more directly speak to today's topic. If I was able to eliminate or push to the side everything that pastors, preachers, and other Christians have told me over the course of my faith journey regarding mammon, what conclusions would I come to after reading scripture? For every follower of Jesus who's, who's watching right now, again, you're not a Christian, you, you can swipe left on everything that I'm about to say right now. For every follower of Jesus who's watching right now, give. Give. Today's the day. Stop procrastinating. Stop stop waiting for that magical moment to come. Be obedient to something that the God of the universe so clearly invites us into, trusting that his way really is better. Start giving a percentage of your income back to the vehicle that God has chosen to carry his message to the ends of the earth. Today's the day. Stop waiting. And to those of you who are already practicing this, 10% was never meant to be the finish line. It's the starting point. And so come on, you are well overdue to bump that percentage. If you were being honest this morning, come on, you like me, you haven't thought about that 10% in years. It, it, it doesn't cause you to make a single sacrifice. You don't go on less vacations. You don't go out to eat any less. You do all the things that you would normally do. It, it's just automatic. Generosity, according to the kingdom of God, that we, we give to a place where, where we feel it. Where, where, where when that money gets pulled out of our bank account, we go, ooh, we're not gonna be able to do that now. And to every follower of Jesus in this room, I, I'm begging you to ask yourself, What do I have left? American Christianity asks, what what did I give? Generosity according to the kingdom of God asks, what do I have left? Um, I I have a dear friend uh, who one of his close friends 
once he graduated from college, he took a pretty high-paying job in a community, honestly, not totally different um, from, from our own, where there was a pretty big disparity between those who, who make a lot of money, you know, living in like, you know, multi-million dollar homes, and then those living uh, on the edge of poverty in, in places like trailer parks. And uh, he was so moved uh, by the fact that there, there were no people who were really like chasing after the lost people in his community, and specifically in those more impoverished communities that that, that him and his wife began to feel this burden that maybe they should move out of their very, very nice home that they could very much afford and move into to, to that trailer park. And uh, that was the decision that they ultimately made uh, to specifically be a witness in that community and, and even more so they could be more financially generous with what God was, was giving to them. And, and about a year into this whole journey, um, he, he remarked about how sick he was of, of Christians treating him like he was such a fool. Like, like this was the like, craziest, most ridiculous decision that anyone could possibly make. And, and in fact, at that time, was begging that God would allow him and his wife to become full-time missionaries so that he could get away from American Christians. But, but isn't this exactly the type of behavior that, that marked the first century church? Isn't, isn't this exactly what, what the gospel requires of us? In Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, it says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. His correction isn't rejection, it's love. So he says, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Crumlaw Church, let us as a community turn from our indifference. Let us as a church start saying yes to the stuff that everyone else will look at us side-eyed for. Friends and family and neighbors. Let us start taking the mandates of scripture literally. Turn from your indifference. Turn from the American version of following Jesus. Leverage everything that God has given you for his kingdom and with it, step into the better that he has waiting for you.